G'day, mate 40 here. So, why did I just press you know, go live? Alright, the reason I'm doing this stream is to be of service. The reason I'm doing this stream is to help you. The only reason I'm doing this stream is to give to you the profound gift of, of my complex, multi-layered, sophisticated, deeply textured you know, analysis of the world around us. Now, for everybody else who presses go live, why are they doing it? Well, they're seeking to enhance their status. Seeking to enhance their prestige, they're seeking to enhance their fame, they're seeking to grab your attention, they're seeking to establish a parasocial relationship with you, they're seeking to enhance their money-making opportunities, they're seeking to live more and more in a virtual world where they can play out their fantasies of great profundity and wisdom and, and have you know, the world recognize their various talents right, but that's that's those other live streamers man I'm just here to I'm just here to give mate I'm just here to help but there's a statement in the Talmud the best of doctors go to hell so why do the best of doctors go to hell because they believe that they in their secular medical talents cure people not God so the traditional orientation to life in the Western world is that you know, God is responsible for you know, everything around us you know whether our fortunes rise and fall there our nation rises and falls there's an earthquake a fire a pestilence plague drought floods fire if you've got stomach upset if uh, your wife is fertile or infertile Right, it's all the will of God. And we live in an increasingly secular age where even people are Orthodox Jews, right? They wear their yarmulke, right? They attribute most of what happens in the world around them to non-theistic causes. So if there's an earthquake, we attribute it to the moving of tectonic plates. If we have, you know, I had a broken wrist, uh, 25 years ago, I went to a doctor to fix my broken wrist. Wrist. I did not seek out Talmudic medicine. It would never occur to me to seek out particularly, you know, Jewish Talmudic medicine for any of my ailments. I go to a doctor for health problems. I go to a psychologist or a mental health professional for my mental health problems. I go to a voice teacher for my voice problems. I go to a you know, elocution teacher for my elocution problems. I get an Alexander Technique teacher to examine how I respond to stimuli. So we live in an increasingly secular world where we attribute, you know, what's going around around us more and more to non-theistic causes. And so, if you just to take this this rabbis versus doctors conflict from a secular perspective, it's clash of power. It's a clash over power because every profession wants to enhance its power, status, prestige, and money-making opportunities, whether it's psychiatrists, accountants, Alexander Technique teachers, lawyers, right? We all want to maximize the number of things that we can do and make money for and receive status acclaim applause for 
and you know, constantly expand the boundaries of what people look to us in our profession for. So, hey, here's an Alexander Technique teacher. I'll tell you, oh, don't waste your time with Feldenkrais or acupuncture or chiropractic. All right, you got back pain. You need to come to me and let's, you know, let's examine the fundamental reasons why you have certain responses to stimuli that are causing you to you know, compress your musculature, pull down, necessarily tighten. And this is deforming, you know, your bone structure and your whole body and your spirit and, and your thinking. And let's release those habits of unnecessary tension and compression. And then after we release those negative habits, the, the pain will start to drop away on its own. So, yeah, I want to enhance the status power, prestige and money-making opportunities for the Alexander Technique teacher. And uh, psychiatrists, right? They're constantly... You know, behind campaigns to convince Americans that we're having an epidemic of mental illness, right? There's unprecedented amounts of depression and anxiety. So psychiatrists are seeking to medicalize you know, normal and healthy human sadness and say, oh, it's not normal, healthy human sadness, normal, healthy reaction to loss. It's a disease, right? 40, if a client has no tension or back problems, do they st still... Need an Alexander Technique lesson. Okay, three reasons why people take Alexander Technique lessons. Number one, it's because you're in chronic pain due to uh, habits of unnecessary tension and compression. Second reason why people take Alexander Technique lessons is they want a high level of performance. High level of performance is a video gamer, e-gamer, or a live streamer. Or as an athlete or a dancer or a public speaker or an actor or a singer or a musician right now a lot of people take alexander technique lessons for a higher level of performance and yes i teach via skype and zoom then third reason people take alexander technique lessons is for personal growth right? people want to become more aware of how they respond to a stimuli and have the ability to recognize their habitual responses and have the ability to let go of those habitual responses that don't serve them. So, for example, I have a habitual response of when I go to sit down in a chair, my lower back tightens. And I still have that. I also have a habitual response before I start a sentence. of a little bit, always an audible gasping for breath. And just even that little bit of gasping intake of breath causes me to tighten and compress my neck, which is not optimal. Okay, I have other suboptimal responses to life. For example, I have an inordinate desire in many situations for more attention than is good for me. So, I, as I grow older, age 57, I can notice you know, my attention-seeking desires rising up within me. And I can choose not to act on them because I know, in, you know, in many circumstances, they're not to my advantage. So in real life, right, it's you know hard to speak for 10 seconds without getting interrupted. So if I want to speak on something that's important to me, I better go live because in real life, no one's going to listen to me longer than 10, 15 seconds without interruption. Uh, I have a habitual response to life of cracking a lot of unnecessary jokes. Like I just see everything as funny as long as you know my. My income is assured and my well-being is assured. I just laugh at everything else. 
which is not an optimal approach to life because other people don't appreciate it. They tire of it rather quickly. They become annoyed, and then they start setting limits on me and separating themselves from me. I have a habitual response to life that is hard and cynical. It's a way I've learned to keep people at bay, and that doesn't serve me. You know, just uh, presenting this hard, cynical face of, to life. So I have all sorts of habitual responses to life, to people, to stimuli, to situations that do not serve me. So the Alexander Technique helps me to become aware of my habitual, perhaps previously unconscious or barely conscious reactions to stimuli and how I can let go of those responses in certain situations that don't serve me. Okay, so every profession seeks to enhance its power, status, prestige, and money-making opportunities, and that includes clergy as well. Right? Clergy used to be the primary source of information. And if you wanted to really know what was going on in your community, you go to church, you go to synagogue. Right? That's started being supplanted in 17th century by printing presses and then newspapers and media and radio and TV. So now when clergy go on radio and TV, they're competing on the devil's playground. Right? There is a reduction in the status and prestige and power an influence that the clergy have simply by, by going on TV. It's kind of a, a reduction in their status. So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventism is a Protestant religion, and the power centers of the Seventh-day Adventist church are in the church administration. It's a hierarchical organization. It's not like Judaism, right, where you know, congregations basically uh, rule themselves largely. So, Seventh Day Adventism, there's a hierarchy, there's you know, one, one leader on top and a board, and uh, it's centered in Washington, D.C., worldwide. There are about uh, 25, 27 million Seventh Day Adventists in the world. And almost all the growth over the last 50 years has come in third world countries. There is a three generation cycle Seventh Day Adventists in first world countries. The first generation tends to be traditional Adventists. They believe very much in the distinctive teachings of the church, that the war's coming to an end, that there'll be something like only 144,000 people saved. You know, they're very into apocalyptic. They believe they know what will happen at the time of the end. Right, all these distinctive teachings, so they tend to be fire-breathing, traditionalist, distinctive, uh, you know, believe in the soon coming of Jesus. They send their children to Seventh-day Adventist day schools, and the kids get a pretty good education, by and large. Then they go off to a secular university, by and large. The more secular education you have, the less religiosity you begin to have. So kids go off to a secular education at university, and they become doctors and lawyers and accountants and professors. And so they then become liberal Adventists or evangelical Adventists, so much more relaxed, much more easygoing, much less belief in the distinctive teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So, for example, when one Seventh-day Adventist applied to study religion at graduate school at Vanderbilt, uh, he had to be taken aside by the leaders of the Vanderbilt graduate religion program and said, hey, there are these distinctive Seventh-day Adventist teachings about how the Pope is the Antichrist and Catholics are, are you know, bad. Um, like all these distinctive, that's not going to fly here. That's you know, unacceptable. So the price of admission, essentially, to Vanderbilt Graduate School to study religion is to give up the distinctive teachings of your religion. And I mean, that would, 
you know, also apply for a lot of other religions. Right. The, the price of admission of polite society in America is to put civility ahead of the distinctive teachings of your religion. So in America, the number one religion is civility. So you don't get much emphasis in American religion about the distinctive supremacist claims of the various religions. Instead, it's all about you know, being good Americans. And, you know, just so long as you worship God in your own way, you're, you know, you're good. So... Seventh-day Adventist power centers, usually the religious administrators, hierarchical approach, they're, they're like the cardinals of the Pope. And my father was a scholar and an evangelist, and he went up against the administrators of the church over questions of doctrine. He wanted to do away with many of the distinctive, you know, God's chosen people teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he lost because the administrators were much more savvy. They were much better at playing politics. So, a scholar will succeed in Seventh-day Adventism you know, to the extent that he plays by the rules of the game and uses his scholarship to advance the distinctive and premises claims of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The more he differs from that, then less status and prestige, power, influence, money-making opportunities he's going to have within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventists are pretty good at making you feel unwelcome if you don't get with the program. Uh, you'll be sent wandering the earth, exiled from the community if you don't conform. But there is a competing power center in the Seventh-day Adventist Church because it's got a big uh, distinctive emphasis on preventative health or health reform. And that's doctors, right? Doctors have secular education. They are the most prestigious subset of Seventh-day Adventists after church leaders. And they obviously all have secular educations and secular expertise. And so just taking a secular perspective on this debate, say, between rabbis and doctors and Seventh-day Adventist church leaders and doctors, you'd see this as a struggle between different professions for power, prestige, status, and uh, money-making opportunities. So traditional Orthodox Jews have generally discouraged Jews becoming doctors because it means getting a secular education. And the more secular education people get, the less religious they tend to be. And uh, also there are often classes on Sabbath that you work off of you to work on the Sabbath so that you know, once you start compromising on Sabbath observance you know, the whole edifice of Orthodox Jewish observance or just traditional religious observance in general starts to fall apart. I remember when I was at the Adventist, the you know, doctors would carry beepers even on the Sabbath. They'd be in church and their beeper would go off and they'd have to run to the phone and you know, maybe go to work. And uh, Seventh-day Adventists also pay professionals according to professional wages. So generally speaking, Seventh-day Adventist employees are not well paid. But when it comes to doctors and lawyers, right, they're paid just like other doctors and lawyers. So they have a lot more income than other Seventh-day Adventist employees. And with more income comes more power, prestige, and status, and more opportunity to make more income. So... Yeshiva University is the flagship American university of the modern Orthodox movement. 
and it's become a big emphasis in modern Orthodox Judaism over the past 60 years that women should study Talmud. So Talmud is shorthand discussions of the rabbis from approximately 2,500 years ago till it was put into final form, something like the 6th century of the Common Era. And generally speaking, it's men who, who dominate study of Talmud. Like if every female scholar of the Talmud disappeared tonight, you know, the, the world of Tamil scholarship would be essentially unchanged. But uh, modern Orthodox Judaism is heavily influenced by the mores, the, the values, the egalitarian you know, feminist approach of modernity, right, which believes that people um, are capable of, you know, rationally guiding their lives, that, uh, that we can construct meaning, you know, by ourselves, that uh, we can have a buffered existence, right, we're not you know, constantly polluted by the machinations of demons and angels, right, so traditional Orthodox Jews believe in demons and angels, much more than uh, modern Orthodox Jews who tend to have lots of you know, secular university education. And so along with this idea of the Buffett strategic reflexive self comes the idea that you know, men and women can become anything they want to be, and so women can you know, study Talmud just as well as any man from you know, a modern liberal perspective. But then this butts up against the reality of human nature. So Hebrew University recently... Uh, publicly stated that it was dropping three Talmud classes for women because there's just not enough female enrollment. Right? One class, there was zero female enrollment. You know, women aren't really that interested in studying Talmud. But it's a huge point of emphasis among modern Orthodox Jewish intellectuals because they want to take you know, the best of Gentile culture and combine it with the best of Judaism. But it's absurd. Right? Most women are just not into you know, sitting Talmud. Come on, man. Come on, man. Get going. Bloody hell. So, it's kind of funny to see these delusions of uh, egalitarian nature that, uh, you know, men and women just have the same proclivities in the, the modern forms of Orthodox Judaism. So, the most modern Orthodox Jews, right, they... They're, they're as likely to vote for the Democrats as the Republicans. Um, overall, Orthodox Jews are going to vote Republican in America, you know, probably at about a 75% rate. It's a 25% rate. But uh, when you know, modern Orthodox intellectuals and modern Orthodox rabbis take power, and they try to make things more and more egalitarian, which is largely contrary to the spirit of Orthodox Judaism, which uh, very much believes in you know, different roles for, for men and women. So it's kind of amusing to see this clash. Thank you. See this clash between the Gentile mores of egalitarianism and modern Orthodox Jewish intellectuals who want to take the supposed best of the modern world, try to combine it with the best of Torah, what it usually means is that the modern orthodox are neither modern nor orthodox. Or they're weak in both their modernity and their orthodox Judaism. But it's also the most demanding way of life. Because modern orthodox Jews have the secular university educations. 
It's the most expensive Jewish way of life because modern Orthodox institutions are extremely expensive. And it's got the highest average IQ of any part of, of Jewish life. Probably, you know, the average modern Orthodox IQ is probably something like 15, 120. The average modern Orthodox household in America you know, earns something like $110,000. And a lot more American Jews would be modern Orthodox if only they could afford it. So often they can't afford it, so they go to Chabad or some other form of traditional Judaism because they simply can't afford to keep up with the highly competitive you know, financially and morally doing. So a large number of modern Orthodox Jews belong which have their own independent ethics codes. So modern Orthodox Jews are by and large much more likely to behave in an upright fashion with regard to the laws of the land than traditional Orthodox Jews because the ethical codes of their professions have become ingrained in them because they're not going to survive and thrive as doctors, accountants, lawyers if they don't abide by these you know, ethics codes.